Books, books, books. Books, books, books. We uh, too many books. Talking about what books? Too many books. Too many. Not 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 enough books. Did you say not not enough books? Oh, there's just too many books. I got too many books. I got too many books. I I can't even I can't even bring myself to talk about it. I filled up that new bookshelf I got already. Like not even like a month. Not even a month. It's a big bookshelf too. Oh man, and most of it's all to read stuff. Mm-hmm. I put all my to read stuff there. So like you got me Stephen King later to read. Yes, and ask for that. And ask for that book. <laughs> do I do I ask for any of the books that you are like here? Read name this. one time I gave you a book that I just said here you have to read this and shut up. Uh, you yeah, my well my uh, uh, next episode will when we go over uh, what we read this year. <laughs> mostly all my picks. I hope you have that organized. I got mine organized. And by organized, I mean it's just on Goodreads. Uh, but yeah, I got too many books to read. And I, I ordered more books. That's, that's You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that in the episode because the episode's about books. Uh, so if you folks want to hear about the more books I ordered, I ordered, I just keep getting them. And then Ashley sent me books in the mail. And then, oh, and he sent me a, that girthy Thomas Wolfe book. Well, yeah, that's a that's gonna take you some time there. Yeah, Thomas Wolfe is a very complicated writer. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I just don't know when I'm gonna read it. And then uh, I still got two more volumes of Lord of the Rings to read. I don't I don't know what to go to next. Plus the uh, some Sumerian or whatever. Similarian, whatever it is. Yeah, I got so three. Oh, uh, but I think that's more like an anthology almost or short stories. I think that's how somebody said you should go into it. Viewing it as that and not like an actual, you know, its own story, really. Mm. I don't know. I don't really know much about it. But I got too many books. And not enough life at this point. Right. Not enough li- years ahead of me to be able to read them all. Unless I stop buying all books, stop watching TV movies, uh, stop being married, stop writing, uh, stop having a job. Somehow become independently wealthy. That would. How do you do that in 2021? You have to, like, yeah. buy Bitcoin or something. Or be like, uh, create NFTs, or I don't know. Maybe you can like. Uh, that's why we need some check and pen NFTs. Yeah, because that's what people are gonna fuck. You know what? People fuck buy anything because they're stupid. You just gotta be a good marketer. That's all. But anyway, we're gonna be talking about books, so we should probably just go into the episode. At least like fifty of them. Yeah, we can't spend too much time on the. Very, very cold open. This this is extra cold because I'm just not I'm not in the mood to do the podcast, to be honest with you. What? Just tell you, you that right off, right never, off the jump street. Never. That that that's never like you. Don't want to do it, but I'll do it because you make me do it with that stupid he has such a pointy stick. It's like you don't even know. <laughs> Nobody can ever see the stick you hold under the table. So pointy. The messed up part is that you let me keep the stick here. Well, you easily get rid of it at any time. Well, it's your stick. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna steal a man's stick. That's fucked up. But yeah, Spencer's poking stick is rough. It's very pointy. And somehow I think you like, did you put like titanium down the middle and then somehow get wood around it? Is that what it is? Because it seems like it's unbreakable. Yeah, I did a mixture of uh, an adamantium and um uh the the the, the cap shield stuff. I can't. Vibranium. Vibranium. Some comic fan you are. Yeah, it's, uh, I lied when I said I didn't, uh, try to steal your stick, and I actually threw it into, like, that molten lava stuff from Terminator, Terminator 2. It didn't do nothing. I had to go fishing in there, and I lost lots of skin. 
Uh, but we will be back after what's going to be... This isn't our last episode with this music, right? We got a couple more episodes. No, yeah, we got a couple more. But pretty soon, we might have new music. So enjoy the intro music while you can. Unless we don't change it. Which is a possibility. Yes. You are listening to the Drunken Penwriting Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb James. With me today, as always, here again in my house, this fucking stick, Mm -hmm. Spencer, the Rochester Reindeer Rubber Church. It's uh, two things. One is obviously Christmas theme, so you're reindeer rubber. Two, rubber was not the verb that I was going to use originally. Yeah. I had a different R verb. I don't that know. That you were going to do to reindeers, but I felt like rubbing would be uh, a little better for this episode, which is not going to be highbrow, but it is going to be talking about literature. Uh, did you read any of this list? No. Mm, I read one. Uh, we're covering the 50 greatest novels under 200 pages. I thought since we're going into the new year, this would be a good topic to broach because a lot of people want to read classic literature or fine flutin literature, but they don't want to get into these War and Peace, Anna Karenina, giant tombs, which I don't blame. Yeah. So I thought maybe you could pick something from this list as well because mm. it's under 200 pages. Some of them I saw were like 100, 150 pages, I think. Oh, that's so, nice. So you might be able to read. Don't breathe into the mic, man. How are you even doing that? You got new mics and you're breathing right into it. <sighs> Just stop. Just stop it. It's because you're looking down. Look, yeah. Look up. <gasps> yeah, see that? Look how much better. Well, hold your foot. <laughs> This isn't that problematical at all. <laughs> at least you're not breathing into the mic that way. Uh, so this is from Lit Hub. They always have good lists, so I'm just going to jump into it. I'm not going to read the 30-page intro talking about this guy. Don't you hate that, too? And you're like, well, you probably don't do this, but you ever look up a recipe on something? I do this with cocktail recipes. Yeah, I look up different cocktail recipes. And it's just like this big, oh, today we're going to teach you how to make an old-fashioned with a twist. So the first time I ever had an old fashioned was in 1987 when my mother came back from France and and it's just like why are why do I have a whole life story here of the person writing this I just want the fucking five second recipe like we need none of this none of this oh boy I didn't not I'm not gonna be able to pronounce some of the stuff on here it's Frenchies and you know how I am with French and any language I feel like the only language outside of English and Japanese I can that's it. It's the only two I could pronounce. What about uh Spanish? I probably fucked that up. Like the names. Mm. Some I I can't roll my R's. And that automatically, you know, discounts you from being a Spaniard. So the first one, and this is not in order. I know how much that enrages uh, you. This is not a worst to best though. I know. It just says fifty books. Adolfo Bioy Caceres T R dot Ruth L C Sims. What? <laughs> That's a hell of a name. That's a name. Uh, the Invention of Moral or Morel, nineteen forty, is only one hundred and three pages long. I hope they don't say this person's and, name again. And most of it is just the name of the, the author's yeah. name takes up most of those pages. I might put this in the show notes. I haven't decided. I haven't been doing that lately because well, one, we haven't been covering articles that much. But when we do, I just don't feel like it. But we've been reading like a lot of garbage articles, yeah. uh, so I feel like this one might be a little better. I feel like we say that at the beginning of every new yeah. episode that we have an article. This one will probably be better. Never is. Uh, so, The Invention of Morrow. 
Both Jorge Luis Borges and Octavia Paz. Uh, both Jorge Luis. Is it Luis or Louis? Louis, 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 Louis. Because I always just like look at Robert Louis Stevenson and be like Robert Louis Stevenson. But he's Robert Louis Stevenson. So I think that's what it is. I don't know. So both Jorge Luis Borges and Octavio Paz described this novel as perfect. And I admit, I can't find much fault with it either. It is technically about a fugitive whose stay on a mysterious island is disturbed by a gang of tourists. But actually, it's about the nature of reality and our relationship to it, told in a most hypnotizing, surrealist style. A good anti-beach read if you plan that far ahead. Anti-beach read, huh? Uh, this was also written by Emily Temple. Uh, ooh, it's a new article, 2021. Well, fuck. That's like the newest article we've ever done. No, you say that all the time. You say that every time I cover one that's more modern. We covered one that was like the week of. Nah. Yeah, we nope. did. We covered an article that came out the week of recording, so I don't want to hear you ever say that again. This uh, is like the oldest one we've ever done. Shut up. Just shut up about it. Next, a name that's much better. Uh, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. You read this one. Yes, I have. Only 107 pages. And even though they said novels or books or whatever, like all these are novellas, really. Uh, 1937, one of my favorites, uh, John Steinbeck, for a quick read. If you want to depress yourself in a, you know, in a haste, you want to very hastily get yourself in a very sad, somber mood, read Of Mice and Men. Take maybe an hour, and then you'll cry. And then uh, go watch the movie and cry some more. And then uh, you might feel better about life because you're not in that situation. Everybody's gateway Steinbeck is surprisingly moving, even when you revisit it as an adult. Plus, if nothing else, it has given my household the extremely useful verb, to Lenny. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I'm going to to Lenny that. By the way, I, f I keep forgetting. It's been about two years, maybe, year and a half. Uh, every episode, I want you to remind me that I need to start using the term or word or name Boo Radley in Boo. situations. Why? Because it makes you sound smarter when you oh, fucking, yeah. you know, insult somebody. What are you, a real Boo Radley over there creeping in the corner? Like, I never use Boo Radley. The, how they were talking about the two Lenny. I told you about, like, how a couple months ago there was a girl that I worked with and she was talking about getting a rabbit and I was making fun of her about being like. <laughs> Don't Lenny it. Yeah, and, they, and like everybody just looked at me funny. I was like, Made you feel like the smart outcast for once. A little bit. It's a weird feeling. Because I figured they at least seen them would see the movie. That's something that they show in class. Like, yeah, it's a movie. That's like Mice and Men is like a perfect like high school movie to show you to make you think that you're learning something, but they're just killing time. Yeah. Uh, same with this very next one because I read this in school and watched. Uh, I think it was a movie. George Orwell's Animal Farm from 1945. This is only 112 pages. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I always thought that was a Long, bigger, like a probably a bigger, mistaken in 1984, maybe, which is not that much There's, longer. No. but it's longer. If we didn't keep putting it on list, how would future little children of America learn what an allegory is? This is a public service, you see. So we must have not paid much attention in school when we covered Animal Farm because me and you were dumb with the whole allegory word. <laughs> <laughs> Can't let us forget that because if we do, we'll slip back into analogy talk and everyone will think we're buffoons. If they don't already, I would, I would imagine they would. Next up, this I read this when I was a kid, and I want to reread it when we do the the whole um, Sherlock Holmes stuff. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, The Hound of the Baskervilles, 112 pages from 1902. A people pleaser in more ways than one, Sherlock Holmes, after all, had been dead for years when his creator finally bent to public demand, and more importantly, the demand of his wallet, and brought him back in the satisfying and much beloved tale of curses and hell beast and, of course, deductions. Did he die or is he? Uh... Yeah, I didn't know. 
I didn't know uh, Sherlock Holmes was dead. And then they brought him back. Did you know that? They uh, killed him off and pulled like a Marvel Wolverine style resurrection. I think I remember hearing something before, like whenever I was looking into him, that they he stopped doing Sherlock Holmes stories for a while because he was getting kind of tired of being known as just doing those. But I don't think I remember seeing that he killed a character off. Correct. That's not correct. I don't know why I say correct. My mind's elsewhere, by the way. You know what's on? Food, because I didn't eat my five pounds of meat before you came over. Uh, so I'm really hungry. Uh, next one, I thought this one would actually be up your alley if you were to pick one off of this list. James M. Kane, The Postman Always Rings Twice from 1933. It's only 112 pages. A 20th century classic and still one of the best, most important, and most interesting crime novels in the canon. Fun fact, Kane had originally wanted to call it Barbecue. I was going to say, that title almost uh, seems like a uh, Alfred Hitch- Hitchcock, you know, kind of title. But you're a crime guy, so I figured you'd be about crime time and want to read that. Crime. That's, that's the next thing I'm going to assign to you. Actually, I'll pick the hardest one on this list since you fucking decided to bring that Stephen King without my, me asking. I didn't ask for that. Oh. Steamed. I'm steamed about it. Next up, Nella Larson, Passing. 19- oh. I don't know why they, I don't like why they put the author's name first. Or read like that. That's like when uh, you go to Europe and stuff and they have the dates all figgly wiggly. Because mm. us Americans don't do the dates right. We, like, you know, November 10th, it would be like 11, 10, 2021, 2024. Man, I'm fucking stupid today. Should have not did this. I should have just said, Spencer, I'm busy. Leave me alone. Put your stick away. Come back <laughs> another day. So next up. Uh, from Nella Larson, Passing, 1929. It's 122 pages. So none of these have even broken the 200-page mark yet. No, we're under the 200-page. Well, up, you know, up to 200 pages. One of the landmarks of the Harlem Renaissance about not only race, but also gender and class, not to mention self-invention, perception, capitalism, motherhood, and friendship, made inedible, indelible, (laughs) inedible, that's a little different, made indelible, by what Daryl Pickney called a deep fatalism at the core. Um, you're going to want to slap me. You know how I said in the uh, the intro I ordered more books? Yeah. Well, here we are. Albert Camus, T.R. Matthew. Is that? Oh, I'm so. You know, Spencer, I would like to punch myself in the face for okay. my stupidity. Okay. The T.R.'s translator in, okay. the, in the title. So that first one. The Adolfo Buyoy Casares yeah. was the author, and the translator was Ruth L. C. Sims. Uh, there wasn't one big name like our dumb. Oh. I'm sorry, folks, that you listen to us. I don't know why you still do. Anyway, uh, so Albert Camus, the translator, Matthew Ward, The Stranger, 1942, 123 pages. I had a small obsession with this book as a moody teen, and I still think of it when extre- with extreme fondness. Is it the thinking person's catcher in the rye? Who could say? But Camus himself put it this way. Writing in 1955, I summarized The Stranger a long time ago with a remark I admit was highly paradoxical. In our society, any man who does not weep at his mother's funeral runs the risk of being sentenced to death. I only meant that the hero of my book is condemned because he does not play the game. I order this book. Not because just the, the name. I keep seeing it popping up in that classic lit group. Because everybody, everybody oh, they'll... Those people will uh, label you a dollard if you've never read Albert Camus. Because I don't like French novelists that much. I don't like postmodernism that much. But I never read Albert Camus, and they always say, read The Stranger. And then I was like, I'm not going to fucking read that. But then when I saw it was only 123 pages, I was like, yeah. all right. And then it was only like six bucks on Amazon. So I was like, okay, 
I'll read you stupid fancy book. The, the fact that she kind of labeled it as Catcher in the Rye for the thinking person makes me want to not read it at all, though. Because isn't Catcher in the Rye supposed to be for the thinking person? Like, I guess if like the thinking person is a whiny butt munch. Next up, Juan Rufo, translator, Margaret Sayers Payton. Pedro Paramo is the book. Paramo? 1955, 128 pages. The strange, fragmented ghost story that famously paved the way for 100 years of solitude, according to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but is an enigmatic masterpiece in its own right. I think they made that word up. That's not, that's a real word, I've heard it. You ever heard of the, uh, an enigma wrapped in a riddle or something? Yeah, yeah. That's the same word, enigma, enigmatic is the... Uh, next up, Italio Covino, translated by Archibald... Fuck. <laughs> Archibald. That, I don't think that's his name, sir. <laughs> Italio Calvino, tra- translated by Archibald. <laughs> Was that close? <laughs> Archibald Colquhoun. C-O-L-Q-U-H-O-U-N. Too many U's. There's a lot of U's in there. Colquhoun. It's the Cloven Viscount, 1958, uh, 1959. It's 128 pages. I only read one Italio Calvino book, and I really liked his writing style, and I want to check out more, so maybe I'll get this. Let's read the synopsis and see. This isn't my favorite Calvino. Well, that's a glowing endorsement. <laughs> but you know what they say. All Calvino is good Calvino. Also, for I forgot him on the contemporary list, so I'm making up for it slightly here. The companion volume to the non-existent knight and the baron in the trees concerns a viscount who is clocked by a cannonball and split into two halves, his good side and his bad side. They end up in a duel over their wife, of course, just like in that episode of Buffy, but turns out that double the viscounts doesn't translate to double the pages. I felt like I read a lot of words, but I didn't understand what I was reading that much. I feel like that's just going to continue as this episode goes on. Yeah. I do want to read some more Italian Calvino, though. He's really the only Italian author that's not like, you know, old Renaissance guy that I know, I think. Probably should read Dante first, though, because I would imagine his work is in a lot of modern, you know, inspired a lot of modern Italian authors, I would think. I don't know. He's like the most famous Italian guy. Italian author, anyway. Uh, Next up, Kate Chopin, The Awakening from 1899. 128 pages. I know, I know. But honestly, this book, which is frequently taught in American schools as an example of early feminist literature, is still kind of edgy. More than 120 years later, and it's still taboo for a woman to put herself and her own desires above her children. Well, yeah, I guess it is. Whom among us has not wanted to smash a symbolic glass face into the hearth? I don't know if I've ever thought about that. Huh. I'm, I'm going to think. I'm gonna ponder this for a minute, so if you want to ramble off about how you feel about hearths, you can go ahead. Um, I'm not even sure. Like a fireplace. Oh, okay. <laughs> then why can't it just be in a fireplace? Because that's not what they're called. They're called hearths. It's different. It's different than the fireplaces. <sighs> you need to watch more um cooking in the 19th century. Yes, that's exactly what I need to do. Or is it the 18th century? 18th century cooking is a YouTube channel I watch sometimes. Shut up. Don't, <laughs> don't judge me. And it's, it visits our ancestors from the 1700s and they're cooking. And there's a lot of hearth talk. It's where I really learned what a hearth was. Because I, like you, I was like, is that like a fire pit or what is that? Oi. Oi. But I'm better for knowing. Anyway, I've never thought about wanting to throw a glass in a hearth. It seems like a mess you'd have to clean up later. Uh, next up, which I did not know this book was this small either. Leo Tolstoy, translated by Richard Pavir and Larissa Vachonsky. 
Volo Honkowski. It's close to honky. I don't like that. Um, she's probably Russian. So yeah, two translators on this one. It's the death of Ivan Ilyevich. 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 Every time I get to Russian names, I'm always thinking like Ilyevich Ivanovich. Like just, it's just, I just get the itch part. That's all I know. Uh, it's 128 pages from 1886. I always thought this book was bigger, but I don't. I haven't read any Tolstoy. I admit it. I admit it. I haven't read any Tolstoy. The greatest, some say the greatest author of all time. I've not, I've, I've done it. His book's too big, but this book's small, so maybe I will. Yeah, maybe this will be the one that you read. Maybe it'll be the one. That's how I got into Dostoevsky. I read notes from the underground because I was like, oh, I'm going to read some Dostoevsky, and then I could be one of them guys smelling his own farts. Oh, I read Dostoevsky. And I was like, book's too big, book's too big, book's too big. And I was like, wait, wait, notes from the underground. Just the right size, size for me. And it took me months. <laughs> it, was a, <laughs> it was a very long read. Another classic, Tolstoy can do it all, long and short particularly beloved by the famously difficult-to-impress Nabokov, who described it as Tolstoy's most artistic, most perfect, and most sophisticated achievement, and explained the thrust of it this way. The Tolstoyan formula is, Ivan lived a bad life, and since the bad life is nothing but the death of the soul, then Ivan lived a living life. Then Ivan lived a living life. That's a weird phrasing. Ivan lived a bad life, and since the bad life is nothing but the death of the soul, then Ivan lived a living life. And since beyond death is God's living light, then Ivan died into a new life, life with a capital L. And that that's why I don't uh, read Nabokov either, because he fucking phrases things like that. It's like, what, what, come on, guy, can't you just say it's a book about death and life? I'm going to go into all that. Not life and life, life, death, life, life, uh, life, death. Living life. the life of living life. When you live life, but you don't want to die, then you got to stay alive. But then when you do die, you're no longer alive. But if you sleep, then that's the cousin of death, so you're only slightly dead, but then you're partly alive. Mm. You pick up what I'm throwing down. No. You smell what I'm cooking. Oh, yeah. Oh, I should have said that. Yeah, no, I forgot. The Rock doesn't. When we talk about John Cena, and he comes busting in. The Rock doesn't do that. He got more class. Well, it's a nice thing when Cena shows up. We don't have because we can't see him, so it's not yeah. that big of a deal. Just, it was the music, the yeah. blaring music. I always got to cut that out every episode. Uh, next up is, and I do not really do. I like that cover or not, Spencer? I don't like the green. It's like shit green. Really? The letter, like the word sugar there. Yeah. It's like shit green. I, I the words like, are fine. Just don't uh, see. I don't like all those tiny words on there. I also feel if you were colorblind, you couldn't read that cover at all. Oh no, it'd be a mess. Yeah. So. uh... So next up is Richard Brodigan in Watermelon Sugar, 1968, 138 pages. Watermelon Sugar, isn't that a fucking Ed Sheeran song or something? <laughs> or like, not not Ed Sheeran, he's too ugly to make a song like that. One of those One Direction kids, maybe. You don't know popular music, Spencer, and it disturbs I, me. I don't. I don't know any pop music. You don't know any music outside of your music. That's fair. Like, when is the last time you listened to, like, Yiddish yodeling or something? Like, you can't name one Yiddish yodeler? Not no, one. No, I can't. I can't. Fucking pathetic, dude. Fucking pathetic. Brodigan's wacky post-apocalyptic novel concerns a bunch of people living in a commune called I-Death. Is that, like, uh... <laughs> that The way that's spelled reminds me of, like, how Apple does it. Like, iPod, <laughs> iTunes, like, yeah, I-Death. Like, a little bit, yeah. The landscape is groovy and the tigers do math and the titular watermelon sugar seems to be the raw material for everything from homes to clothes. Wherever you are, we must do the best we can. It is so far to travel and we have nothing here to travel except watermelon sugar. I hope this works out. It's all nonsense, of course, but it feels so good. So good. Next up, uh, James Weldon Johnson 
The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, 1912, 140 pages. That just title in the cover alone makes me want to read that. That just sounds like uh, might be interesting. Another early novel on the subject of passing, originally published in 1912, then again under Johnson's name in 1927. This one presented as an autobiography written by a black man living as white but uneasily, considering himself a failure, feeling until the end the grief of giving up his heritage and all the pain and joy that came with it. That would be so... Like, I don't even know how you'd live. Like, if you were back then and you were, like, light-skinned enough that you can pass as mm. white... And but then it's like, you know, do I throw throw away my whole heritage just to meld in with the super racist fucking society like you could fit in. But then you have to give up your hair. Like, that's a tough one. I don't know what you do in that situation. It's like, do you look after yourself or do you try to look after every, you know, because also like, you know, if your passing is white back then, then you're probably going to be expected. Like if you encounter black people with other white people, yeah. you'd have to, you know, treat them a certain way or at least ignore them or be very dismissive or something. But any of it would be shitty. It'd be, that'd be hard. That's a book I might have to pick up too. What is it? 140 pages. Next up by Thomas Mann translated by Michael Henry Heim is death in Venice, 1912, 142 pages. What it says on the tin, a story as doomed as Venice itself, but also a queer and philosophical mini-masterpiece. The year before the book's publication, Mann wrote to a friend, I am in the midst of a work, a really strange thing I brought with me from Venice, a novella, a serious and pure in tone, concerning a case of pedestrian, <laughs> what the fuck, pederasty, is in an aging artist. Never read that word. You say, hum hum, but it is quite respectable indeed. Pederasty? Pederasty. I'm going to say pederasty. I don't that know what it means, obviously. Maybe sounds better. This fucking cover freaks me out. This is disturbing. Shirley Jackson, We Have Always Lived in the Castle uh, from 1962. This is 146 pages. This has been on my list for a while to read, actually. But that cover is freaky. Yeah. I like the drawing on it. It's a little little disturbing. It's very close to like a Junji Ito manga type of deal, like just with the creep factor. Or maybe even, uh, you know what, it actually would be more more of a resemblance to, what's his name, um, like the name Air for Christmas and stuff. Uh, yeah, Burton. Tim Burton. Yeah, yeah I, I was kind of thinking Tim Burton too a little bit. Yeah, that's more Tim Burton, but drawing form, obviously. If you're reading this space, you probably already know how much we love this book at Literary Hub. After that excellent opening paragraph, it only gets better. Is that the one we read that's supposed to be the most beautiful paragraph of all time? I have no idea. I'm pretty, well, I know it was Shirley Jackson. I think it must have been from that about the sellers and the caddy dids. Remember the caddy dids? Of course. Yeah, because fucking after I read that, you couldn't stop putting caddy dids in all your stories. Yep. It's like Spencer. I'm not. I, yeah. This doesn't even make sense. There's no caddy dids in Antarctica. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, when you have the muse, yeah, <laughs> you just <laughs> when you want to rip off Shirley Jackson. <laughs> Next up is Christopher Isherwood, a single man from 1964, 152 pages. Isherwood's miniature jewel-like masterpiece takes place over a single day in the life of a middle-aged English expat who shares a few qualities with Isherwood himself. A professor living uneasily in California after the unexpected death of his partner, an utterly absorbing and deeply pleasurable novel. Oh boy. Next up by Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, translated by Richard Pevier and Larissa Volokhansky. I don't know if those were the translators on the edition I have. Uh, they might have been. Uh, but it's Notes from the Underground, 19, or 1864, 
154 pages. 154 long pages. At least the first half of the book. Difficult pages. It's just a guy ranting for half the book. It's it's just his notes from the underground. Once you get past that and you get to an actual story, I liked it. But most people like the ranting. I don't really care about like the society of Russia in the early and mid-1800s. It just doesn't have any, much bearing on my life. Probably the best rant ever passed off is literature. Dostoevsky's first masterpiece has been wildly influential in the development of existential and dystopian storytelling of all kinds. Uh, but I, I like Notes of the Underground. I would recommend everybody read it uh, if you can get through it. Like I said, it's just it, the subject matter. If it's you, you're going to be interested in it or you're not yeah. going to be interested in it. I, I don't know. Mouth is so dry too. Didn't have anything to drink. I just have a. I, I, I yeah, you have no. But you know what you're gonna have to do? Drink a big beer. No, you're gonna have to crack open that surge over there. Yeah, this is fucking. We'll be done with this episode in five seconds. <laughs> have a heart attack. Uh, next up we are Anna Kavan, Ice, 1967, 158 pages. I do not like that cover. That's like a modern bullshit cover. I don't like when they do that to classics. Put modern bullshit covers on them. The narrator of this strange and terrifying novel obsessively pursues a young woman through an icy apocalypse. You might call it a fever dream if it didn't feel so cold. Ooh. Reading it, wrote John McCod, on its 50th anniversary is a disorienting and at times emotionally draining experience, not least because these days one might become convinced that Kevin had seen the future. Help. Next up, we got John, Gene or John Toomer. It's not a tumor. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm just going to, for the sake of, uh, I'm going to say Gene Toomer. Yeah. Gene Toomer, Kane, 1923, 158 pages. Toomer's experimental multidisciplinary novel, now a modernist classic, is presented as a series of vignettes, poems, and swaths of dialogue. But to be honest, all of it reads like poetry, though its an initial reception was uncertain. It has become one of the most iconic and influential works of 1920s American literature. Well, that doesn't sound interesting to me. We're moving on to J.G. Ballard, The Drowned World from 1962. 158 pages. Only in a Ballard novel can climate change make you actually become insane. And only a Ballard novel could still feel so sticky and hot in my brain years after I read it in a single afternoon. You're going to like this guy's name. The next guy? The next guy? Yeah. Next up is Nut Hampson. <laughs> Nut Hansen translated by... When the translator's name's harder to read than the regular <laughs> guy's name, I'm worrying, like, where's the translator from? Same country, I guess. That would make sense. So, from Nut Hampson, translated by Sver Lingstad. Not even close to how that's pronounced. Nope. Uh, the, it's Hunger from 1890, 158 pages. The Nobel Prize winner's first novel is as Hampson put him, himself put it, an attempt to describe the strange, peculiar life of the mind, the mysteries of the nerves in a starving body. In modernist psychological horror novels, that is notoriously difficult, despite its length, but also notoriously worth it. Pass. I'm going to pass on that. Now we're moving on to something, at least I actually know. James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room, 1956, 159 pages. Still my favorite Baldwin, and one of the most convincing love stories of any kind ever written, about which there is too much to say, it is a must-read among must-reads. I don't like when they don't have any synopsis. Yeah, the last couple of them have yeah. nothing about the story. Here's a pro tip for all you uh, article writers out there. If you're going to write about a subject, especially books, have a synopsis or a movie. Like, even if it's only a couple sentences, just so the reader could be like, hmm, because reading that, I don't really want to read it because I don't know what it's about. 
Yeah, you don't even you can't even tell if it's supposed to be like a an a, a, a spence or yeah, like, you know, you like look a at drama the, or you know you look at the cover and there's like a smoking it's like a table with booze and smoke coming from it. I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say noir, but probably not. We have now Willa Cather. Oh, Pioneers from 1913. It's 159 pages. A mythic proto-feminist frontier novel about a young Swedish immigrant making a home for herself in Nebraska with an unbearably cool and modern title, in my opinion. You know what? I disagree. I don't like that title. I do like the cover, though, because it looked like a little kid drew it. <laughs> it does look like a little kid drew it. <laughs> Not, ooh, this sounds interesting. All right, hold on. Let me I'll lick the lips here to get my French in order. We have Francois Sagan, translated by Irene Ash. Bonjour, Tristay. From 1955, it's 160 pages. Sagan's famously scandalous novel of youthful hedonism, published also famously when Sagan was just 19 herself, is much more psychologically nuanced than widely credited. As Rachel Cusk wrote, it is not just a sexy French novel, but also a masterly portrait that can be read as a critique of family life, the treatment of children, and the psychic consequences of different forms of upbringing. It is a novel concerned not only with morals or their lack, but with the very nature of morality itself. I like the name Francois, and I like a story about hedonism, eating grapes and shit. This one's up your alley. You're going to really want to read this one, probably. Herman Melville Billy Budd Sailor, 1924, 160 pages. Bartleby may be more iconic and more fun, but Billy Budd is operating on a grander scale, unfinished as it may be. That cover, I love it. That's probably <laughs> the best cover I've ever seen of anything. <laughs> yeah. Is that John Daly on the cover of that? You know, the golfer? But he has a, he has a mustache, kind can of I, a yellow mullet. Kind of. I was almost kind of thinking of a more... Uh... What's his face from um, Dumb and Dumber? Kind of. Maybe Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning with a mustache. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Whoever that guy is, I fucking like him. I like that guy. You could just you could just tell that's a racist boatman if you ever seen him. <laughs> that guy rides yachts and discriminates and has a lot of uh, maids and waiters that he does not know their names in his house. Butlers, not waiters. Next up, Thomas Pitchin, The Crying of Lot 49, 1966, 160 pages. Didn't know Pitchin had uh, any work that was short. I always thought he was like one of those long writer guys. I, I never read his works. So I don't know. Uh, everyone's gateway to Pinchin and also everyone's gateway to slapstick postmodernism. Either you love it or you hate it. I'm, I'd probably hate it. Yeah, probably. Uh, Franz Kafka, translated by Willa and Edwin Moore. Uh, the Trial, 1925, it's 160 pages. I like The Trial. It was, uh, the thing I like about Kafka is it's just, I lived that life for a long time when I worked at the shitty Walmart way back in the day because it's just a bunch of bureaucracy. It's just a bunch of, hey, you need to go do this. Okay. And then someone else comes, what are you doing? You need to go do that. It's like, okay. Hey, why are you doing that? I told you to do this. It's just back and forth. That's all it is. Just everything in a Kafka world is just that. Just the constant having to go do something, but then somebody else telling you not to do it, and it's just nonsense. I haven't read any of his work, but from what I've seen and like heard about it, it seems like a very almost Mirakami kind of way of like of like just these weird, strange things. Well, Kafka but, was a big influence on Mirakami's writing. Okay, I mean, I mean he wrote that uh, 
like how Kafka's Metamorphosis, Mirakami did a version where mm. remember it's the bug turns into Gregor Samson. Oh, yeah. You need to read the, you need to read Metamorphosis and then read that. But he yeah, I think that's where he got a lot of his style from was Kafka. because uh, like you said, a lot of his stories also deal with uh just like nonsense like that. Just things that are just like what oh man, that would make me so angry. But they're they're mundane. They're like yeah, mundane, mundane mundane madness. Pretty yeah, that's that's a good description. Required reading for anyone who uses the term Kafka-esque, but don't forget that Kafka himself would burst out laughing when he read bits of the novel out loud to his friends. Do with that what you will. I never knew Kafka laughed. He seemed like the most depressed man in ever. Yeah, because, I... um, like, wasn't he always kind of like the poster boy of nobody liked his stuff when he was around? And no, was like... he didn't like his stuff, and he didn't want anybody to read it. Oh, okay. And he wanted to burn everything he had before he died, but his friend didn't, thank God. Because I think uh, Kafka's father... I don't know if it was like a Lovecraft situation where he thought it, um, like writing. No, that didn't happen. To Lovecraft. Who was that? Somebody, Yukio Mishima's father thought writing was feminine, mm. shouldn't do it. But I, I'm pretty sure Kafka had like big bad daddy issues. Like his dad sucked, and uh, Kafka didn't like you know believe in his writing. Next up, Kenzabuto Oe, translated by John Nathan. A personal matter, 1968, 165 pages. This has uh, been on my list too to read. Whew! This book is a lot. Absolutely gorgeous and supremely painful and probably the Nobel Prize winner's most important. I liked, uh, I'm pretty sure he's the one who did uh, Snow Country. I like that book. I don't know if that'll pop up on this list because that was a pretty short one. Dejuna Barnes, Nightwood, 1936, 170 pages. In his preface to the first edition, T.S. Eliot praised the great achievement of a style, the beauty of phrasing, the brilliance of wit and characterization, and a quality of horror and doom very nearly related to that of Elizabethan tragedy. It is also a glittering modernist masterpiece, and one of the first novels of the 20th century to explicitly portray a lesbian relationship. Ooh, okay, lesbians. Yeah, this, I don't know why I thought that was, uh, oh wait, it was definitely not, it was, uh, Next one here, Yazanari Kawabata, translated by Edward G. Seidensticker. I like that name. Uh, Snow Country, 1937, 175 pages. A story of doom love spun out in a series of inedible frozen images, both beautiful and essentially suspicious of beauty by a Nobel Prize winner. I was going to say, they both won, you know, they were, I don't know if they were the first two. I, I want to say those guys, uh, Kawabata and Oe, were the first two Japanese Nobel Prize winners. I believe. If not very early. They were very early, yes. I read Snow Country because it was, you know, he won the Nobel Prize for it. I was like, well, it must be good. Like a lot of Japanese literature at the time, it was more about the writing and the details of the place and, like, the emotions of the people than a story, really. Mm. Uh, I really liked it, but I wouldn't read it again. Next up, Gene Riss. Um, Rise? Right, yeah, Rise. People throw rise. H's in it. That always messes me up. Gene Rise, I would say that would be. Uh, Wide Sargasso Sea, 1966, 176 pages. This novel, Rise's famous repost to one of the worst love interest in literary history, tells the story of Mr. Rochester. Whoa, that's meta, man. Mr. Rochester. You're Mr. Rochester today. I am. You're the Rochester reindeer rover. Yep. Fucking weird. As if as if it was meant to be. I thought you'd be more excited. I would be if like my Well, name. I already knew. Oh well I didn't read it. So well I... no, I just because I know. It's a big like time loop thing. Don't worry about it. Just keep keep going. Oh, you're still in that. Yeah. Damn, I'm sorry for you, man. I thought you would have died by now. Uh tell Oh us I the... have. Oh, oh <laughs> that's even worse. Just keep looping back around. 
Is that what? Is that why you keep the stick? Yeah. Because you're just so angry because you can't change anything, so you just keep stabbing me. Yeah, because it, no matter what, the next time I come over, it, all the wounds are gone. Yeah. Well, the the, the emotional wounds are yeah. still there. I know what you did. Uh, the because it's weird. I could view the loop from the outside, but I can't join. No, which I don't want to. But yeah. I just play along. Uh, Rise famous ripples. So, a uh, story of Mr. Rochester from the point of view of the mad woman in the attic. Ooh, I like that. Uh, next up, George Eliot, Silas Marner, 1861, 176 pages. Like Middlemarch, Silas Marner is exquisitely written and ecstatically boring. Unlike Middlemarch, it is quite short. Uh, everyone tells me I got to read Middlemarch, and from my understanding, it's just very, very long and extremely boring. And why would I want to read that? Just because it's well written? I don't. That sounds like something that you would read, though. Yeah, but I don't fall into the category of I like to read very well written stories that I fall asleep when I read the first page. Like I don't. If I'm not interested in the story, or I mean, I, there is something to say about really good writing that could make you stick with the story. Uh, but if it's really really long, uh, you get the Moby Dick effect. Where you're like, I don't care about the fucking whales anymore. Just get on to story. You know, I just I get mad. I don't got time. Who ain't, ain't nobody got time for that? We gotta be fucking getting to near the end of this. Oh, I'm still at the top of the page on my sliding bar. No, that's not right. I hope not. My phone's broken. It looks like it is. Next up is Muriel Spark, the girls of slender means. Uh, before I go into this, how many more do we got? Uh, we got too many, so I'm just gonna just read the titles here. So, Muriel Spark, The Girls of Slender Means from 1963, 176 pages. After that, we got Robert Walzer's, translated by Christopher Middleton, uh, Jacob von Guten, 1969, 176 pages. Uh, Chinua Achebe's Things Falls Apart, which is from 1958, 181 pages. I read that last year. It was pretty good. You can say, I thought that one sounded familiar. Yeah, we covered it on one of the, the African episode that everybody got mad at us for. Mm. And then... Uh, yeah, I read that book, and it was really good. Uh, after that, we got Leonard Gardner with Fat City. Uh, that's from 1969. It's 183 pages. I like the cover of Fat City. Uh, that's cool. And then we got, after that, N. Scott Mama Day, House Made of Dawn. 1968, it's 185 pages. Got Chester Himes, If He Hollers, Let Him Go, 1945. That's 186 pages. Then we got The Great Gatsby from F. Scott Fitzgerald. Everybody knows that one. Uh, then we got Vladimir Nabokov. Uh, P-N-I-N. Pin. Pin. Uh, that's 1957. That's 190 pages. So these are getting a little longer. I think, uh, They're going I, up I think as the list carries on, I think the books get a little bit bigger. Yeah. Isn't it crazy to think The Great Gatsby is only 189 pages? You haven't read it yet, but no. it's like when you do... They got a lot of packed in those pages. He fucking sure could write his ass off. Well, he could. Like, a guy that drank that much could write like that. It's amazing, in my opinion. It's like, how do you... Like, if I had two beers, my writing goes to shit. Like, how do you function? Yeah. Did I say... Did I do Norwood yet? Charles Portis, Norwood, 1966. 190 pages. Then we got Philip K. Dick, Ubik. That's on my list, too. Uh, 1969, 191 pages. And then we got Clarice. Let's... Oh, that's a weird name. Clarice Lispector, translated by Allison and Trinken, uh, Near to the Wild Heart, 1943, 192 pages. Uh, we got Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange coming in in 1962 at 192 pages. I loved Clockwork Orange. You, it takes you about halfway through before you start to understand it. Yeah. 
because he created his own language, his own slang, uh-huh. which I think there's a dictionary in the back for it. No, but it's so great. It's just like a lot of the words, you're like, what the fuck does that? You have to look mm-hmm. them up. And, but once you get it, you're like, yeah, I like it. Uh, we got Barbara Commons. Commons? I feel like people were really uh, willy-nilly with the the Ys back in the day. Or whatever country these people were coming from. Some European country. throwing them everywhere. There's some, like, East European countries that just don't give a fuck. They just throw in the Ys and use all willy- in H's. Uh, so we got Barbara Commons. Who was changed and who was dead? 1954, 193 pages. We have Zora Neil Hurston. Their eyes were watching God. 1937, 194 pages. Then we got Edith Wharton's Ethan Fromm from 1911. That's 195 pages. We got Joan Lindsay Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1967, 198 pages. 50 is a big number. I didn't realize. I feel like sometimes we cover 50 and it just goes flying by. Other times, geez, Louise. We got Angela Carter, The Magic Toy Shop from 67. That's 200 pages. And that's the last one. So even though we skipped about twenty five of those, how many? Uh, you have is there anything on the list you want to read, Spencer? Uh, like that Philip K. Dick. I would eventually want to read. Um, the Kafka stuff. I just I would like to get into eventually. He's just the guy I would like to read in general. Um, I mean, a couple of those seemed kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, especially considering the um, you know, the page count on most of them is you know makes it a little bit of of an easier. Uh, pill to swallow too. So I don't know. Like a lot of them, I haven't really heard of before. I don't know about you. So you're gonna read Tolstoy and then Nabokov and then Dostoevsky. Yes, all those. And Kawabata. Mm-hmm. And Oe. Yes. And then Chinua Achebe. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the Great Gatsby. Obviously. And then uh, yeah, Shirley Jackson too. Might as well. Dids. Yeah. Caddy did. All of them caddy did. We were going to do that for Halloween. That's what it was. Remember, we were trying to decide what we were going to read for Halloween. You were like, hey, how about Shirley Jackson's in the high castle or whatever? Yep. And I read the, the paragraph, and you were like, yeah, Caleb, let's do it. And then, at the last minute, you threw me a curveball, and you are like, hey, Caleb, there's this book called Blood Moon. Spencer melded. Uh, so that is our episode for today. I'm sorry that I sped things up at the back uh, end of that. My, I'm losing my voice now. Though, <coughs> throat hurts. Though, like, half of those hardly had anything written underneath the pages anyway. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes, but a lot of those descriptions uh, weren't even about the book, really. It's just about the author reading the book. And then uh, some of them didn't even really have descriptions. So a lot of those I skipped and didn't have that much information anyway. Uh, but you can go and check that out. Um, you can also see our work, which is full of caddy did, especially Spencer's, at Drunken Pen Writing. Dot com, not dot com. That's a different website. Yeah, that's DPW short. You don't want to, you don't want to. That DPW does not stand for drunken pen writing. That stands <laughs> for something else. <laughs> and it's yucky. Uh, you can check us out on Twitter if you want to at drunk pen writing. I am all but of abandoned Twitter. I still post on there sometimes, but it sucks. No engagement, man. None. Like very, I mean, some people engage wasteland. with some people go on the DPW to engage, but not. Yeah, it's like everybody just bitches and nobody fucking cares. I think it's like Ashley sent actually sent me a thing about all the numbers of social media, like what their numbers are, how many followers and subscribers and whatever. Twitter was like at the very bottom almost. Like there was like a bunch I never even heard of that were above it. So I'm like, yeah, Twitter must be dying. Facebook and Instagram, you can follow us at Drunk Pen Writing. Drunk in pen writing. The N is in that one. 
So uh, Facebook and Instagram at Drunken Pen Writing. Instagram, I've been enjoying a little more. I think we're just going to switch and put a focus on there because people seem to like Instagram better. It just seems to be the way to go. And Facebook, is people are evil on Facebook. Yeah. So I don't. I try to stay out of there too. Uh, and you can go to Spencer's OnlyFans. He's got a Christmas theme video up. Is uh, where were you? The, the Rochester Reindeer Rubber. Yep. Yes. But if you go to the the if you go to his OnlyFans, it's act. We have the rubber as the name of the OnlyFans. When you go on there, he has the uncensored verb mm. that he used, which is very. You're gonna get canceled, bro. <laughs> I mean, what you do to those reindeers? Oh, disgusting. Like Rudolph. Poor guy's nose is never going to be red again. <laughs> Not after what you did to him. He ain't flying. Uh, so thank you for listening, and uh, check us out next week. See you later.